O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our good Father, we come to you in humility and meekness this morning. We need you to meet with us. Our desire is to see your name glorified. Would you remove distractions, increase our attention span and concentration, bring focus to our minds and humility to our hearts? Father, would you help us not to be hearers who forget, but doers who act? We lift up Cameron and Kristen Harris this morning as they minister to students at Western Washington. We pray for spiritual renewal. We pray for vision and new opportunities this coming year for them and for their student leaders to effectively serve you and to serve others. And now as Kurt comes before us to open your word, we pray for you to work. You have provided us with your word, and as Kurt preaches from this psalm today, may your truth be proclaimed, may the gospel be clear, may our hearts be encouraged, our sin confronted, and your name magnified, and we'll thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Wonderful to be here, to be able to worship uh, today. We've been looking forward to sharing with you, and uh, we just greatly appreciate your partnership with us. It was wonderful to hear the Harris's update on what God is doing in their lives and ministry. And uh, we feel the same way. Uh, your partnership with us 
uh, has just been an invaluable part of our ministry and what God has allowed us to be part of. And we are grateful to you for what you've been doing. Um, Mark mentioned that we have been uh, part of this for almost 20 years now. And I know that's shocking. We, I know we don't look anywhere near old enough to have been in ministry for that long. Uh, but we just praise God for the opportunities that He has placed in our way and for your part in that. You've been supporting us financially, but you've been helping in other ways too. We've had several people that keep in touch with us that want to know what prayer requests we have and communicate those, and that is so helpful to us. And you've also sent some people to help in East Asia, helping teach pastors, helping with some English outreaches that we've done. And so we just appreciate your part in uh, what God has called us to do. Before I get into Psalm 7, I just want to share a couple of uh, areas in which you can pray as we have a couple of projects coming up this fall that we're looking forward to. One is uh, sometime in late October, early November, we're hoping to spend a couple of weeks in Egypt uh, doing some training of uh, some national missionaries who are in training to serve in countries in that region Uh, Places where most of us as Americans would never be able to go, yet God has called these individuals and they just need some training and preparation. So we're hoping to go and be part of that uh, in a couple of months. And then we also would like to set up a time of training in Eastern Europe for a group of national pastors in Romania, Ukraine, and that surrounding region, uh, mostly training them on how to help people through crisis. And uh, you know they've been going through a lot of it with the refugee ministry and all that's taking place. And uh, so we'd like to just try to provide some help for them as they carry out what God has given them to do. If you could pray for these two projects, we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, we do have a sign-up sheet out there too on the, at the information desk. If you're not getting our updates and you'd like to, uh, you can put your name and email address and we'll be glad to add you to our list. We're looking at Psalm 7 this morning, and uh, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but this psalm was most likely written by David in response to the way that Saul had been treating him. Uh, You can read about that in the last half of the book of 1 Samuel, starting in about chapter 17, on through the rest of the book, talks about the abuse that David experienced at the hands of Saul and others. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel gives us what is probably one of the most well-known events that have ever happened, and that is when David defeated Goliath. And it was almost immediately after that, Saul, who was the king, brought David to live in the palace with him. David intrigued Saul. David was interesting. And so he brought him to live with him, to serve with him, But it wasn't very long, maybe just a few days or weeks, and Saul began to realize that the hearts of the people of his kingdom were turning toward David. Saul has already been told by Samuel that he's going to lose his kingdom, and the kingdom will be given to another outside of his family. He already knows that's coming. And now, as Saul looks at what's going on, he can begin to see uh, the foundation for that, the preparation for that, and it makes him nervous. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. David started getting on Saul's nerves. He was irritating now, not interesting anymore. There was this annoying song that was being 
passed around that uh, David has, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Why do they have to sing songs like that? What, what attention should David get for his small part of defeating the giant Goliath? Jealousy and fear began taking over in Saul's mind and heart and began driving everything he was doing. Jealousy and fear are now starting to drive Saul slowly berserk. He cannot concentrate on his job as a king. He doesn't care about the kingdom anymore. The only thing he can think about is finding David and getting rid of him. At one point, Saul was so overcome by jealousy and fear that he took his javelin and threw it at David. And it was an act of premeditated, intentional attempt to murder him. Before he threw it, he said, I'm going to pin, I'm going to pierce David and the wall. Saul actually did that at least two times. There was another time where his own son, Jonathan, began trying to defend David. And Saul became so angry with Jonathan that he tried to kill him too. Saul is slowly losing his mind. He is unable to think clearly or to even do his job as the king of Israel. Back when Goliath was threatening Israel, Saul was making a desperate attempt to try to find somebody who would stand against this enemy. And in his attempt to do that, he offered one of his daughters would be, become the wife of whoever would slay Goliath. Well, now it was time to keep that promise. So Saul found one of his older daughters, Merab, and brought her to David. Publicly, these are the words that Saul said to David. He said, only be a brave man for me and fight the Lord's battles. But 1 Samuel tells us that inside, David was, or Saul was thinking, I will not put him to death, but maybe the Philistines will. He's, he's going crazy. David is being treated unfairly, unjustly. David has been the only person in the nation who was willing to trust God and stand before Goliath. And now he's being completely rejected by that, for that. This is the exact opposite of what he deserved. And certainly the opposite of what he would think he should expect. Well, the story goes on, but I want to highlight just a couple of statements that were made about David. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 14, depending on what version you read, says, David behaved himself wisely. In the midst of all this suspicion, mistreatment, unjust, unfair abuse, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Just a few verses later in verse 18, we see a, a genuine, humble response to what was happening in his injustice. During this injustice, David is determined to pursue wisdom and humility. And that's what we see here in Psalm 7. If you're looking at Scripture, uh, you'll probably notice that before verse 1, there is a title for the psalm. And this is what the title says. It, it is a shagain of David, which he sang 
to the Lord. Now let's stop right there. A shagain of David, which he's saying to the Lord. A shagain is a song or a psalm. David wrote this song and then he sang it to the Lord. He's not singing it to his enemies. He's not singing it to Saul. He's not singing it to an audience. He's singing it to God. This is uh, an act of worship on David's part. He is singing this as uh, a time of worship to God. He's not asking God for justice. He's not asking God really to do anything in this psalm. He is just expressing worship to him. And that's why throughout this psalm he is talking to God. Not to us, not to his enemies, but he is using his injustice, his unjust treatment to worship God. You go on in the title there. It says, he sang this song uh, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. And uh, honestly, we really don't know for sure who this guy is that's, that spoke these words, who Cush was. A lot of people think it was another reference to Saul, and that certainly could have been. Saul was a Benjaminite. Other people think that Cush was a real guy, a guy named Cush who was a servant of Saul and was speaking the words on Saul's behalf. Either way, uh, we don't have the details, but either way, this is somebody who is speaking out for Saul, writing in response, David is writing in response to unfair, undeserved attack that ultimately came from Saul in some way. As you read through the psalm, you'll notice that David really doesn't give us any details about what was going on at the time. That's not his point. I think he was referring to or thinking to a specific event, but he doesn't tell us exactly what it was. Instead of that, he is expressing his worship to God. And in this psalm, David shows us. He doesn't just tell us, but he shows us how to endure injustice. Now, there are a lot of people around who are perfectly willing to tell us how to endure injustice. There are not many who show us how to do it, but David is one of those. If I could boil my whole message down to one sentence today, this would be the sentence that I'm trying to express. Every experience of unfair treatment is an opportunity to grow in Christ. I think that's what David is trying to say throughout this psalm. As we look at this psalm together, I want us to think through three commitments that will help us when it's our turn to endure unfair, unjust treatment. And the first commitment is this one. I will use this trial as an opportunity to grow in my trust in God. I will use this trial as an opportunity to grow in my trust in God. We see that expressed in verses 1 and 2. David began his first statement in his song was an expression of trust in God. He said, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. He is not pleading with God to do something. This is not a request. He is not saying, God, please be my refuge, or I need a refuge. He's saying, God is my refuge. I trust him. I trust him to take care of this. This is a statement of trust. Yahweh, Elohim, the two strongest names for God. And then he makes this intentional commitment that God will be 
his refuge. He will take refuge in God. He goes on in verse 2 to express his dependence on God for deliverance. This is what I'm trusting God to do. And as you read through verse 2, you can see how serious this trial really was for David. Saul was not just saying mean things to David. David was in danger. And if God did not intervene in some way, he would have been torn apart. This was a dangerous, excessive, life-dominating kind of struggle and trial. It was unjust, unfair treatment that he did not deserve. I want to take just a few minutes to compare David's experience here with one from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul, who is another guy who doesn't just tell us but shows us how to endure unjust, unfair treatment. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And I've got the words on the screen here, but I, I want to take a minute if you'll just follow along as we read this passage. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9. Paul is talking about his own experience here. And in verse 7 he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we don't know what happened here either. We don't know what the thorn was or how that played out in Paul's life. Paul doesn't give us any detail here about how he was suffering or what his circumstances were. We have no idea. And I know the Holy Spirit led Paul to write like that, but if I were writing 2 Corinthians, you would know what happened to me. <laughs> you would have every detail. 2 Corinthians 12 would be the longest chapter in the Bible, longer than Psalm 119. But that wasn't Paul's focus. He wasn't focused on the circumstances or the people that were causing the problems. His focus was on what God was doing in the midst of it. When you see the English word thorn in verse 7, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, probably a thorn from a rose bush or a thorn from a blackberry bush, and you're out there weeding your roses and you get one stuck in your finger and it's irritating, it hurts, especially if you can't get it out right away. But I don't really think that's what Paul was talking about here. The English word thorn comes from the original text, which is only used in this verse, no other place in the Bible. But in other literature, it is talking about a sharp wooden stake, a piece of lumber. So this is not talking about a thorn from a rose bush getting stuck in your finger. He's talking more about getting impaled by a fence post. This is a serious, life-threatening, excessive form of suffering for Paul. It is a serious trial. And we know that Paul endured a lot of injustice from the people around him. He may have been talking about that or something completely different. But in any case, this is severe suffering. The same kind of suffering that, that David was going through. Now, Paul recognized that Satan was using this thorn, this trial, as a weapon against him. He could see that. 
And that is, I believe, always true. He said, this was a messenger of Satan to harass me. And one thing we can know is that when we go through injustice or other forms of trial, Satan is using it as a weapon. It's not something that Satan is thinking about doing or would like to do. He is already doing it. That's what he does. That's his normal use of trial in our lives. So when we recognize the attack of the enemy, we shouldn't be surprised by that or afraid because of it. This is what always happens when we go through any kind of suffering. Satan is going to use it against us. So what do we do when that happens? When we recognize that this is a a weapon being used against me, how do we respond? Well, James chapter 4 tells us we resist him. We draw near to God and resist the devil. We resist the temptations he's bringing our way. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us we stand firm with the armor that God has already given us. We stand firm against these attacks. But still, it's painful and difficult, and we know that Satan is using this trial as a weapon against us. At the same time, God is using this same trial as a tool to help us grow. Paul recognized that God was using this to keep him from becoming conceited. To help him grow in humility is another way we could express that. I think Paul was already humble. Uh, This was not a punishment for pride. God was not saying, Paul, you're proud. Here, have a thorn. This will teach you something. That's not, I, think, I don't think, what, Paul, what God was doing here. He was using this to help Paul grow in his humility. And I don't want to be offensive, but I would think every one of us in this room could use that. This is a struggle we all face as followers of Christ. We all need to grow in humility. I, I want to give you just a short diagnostic test to see if you need to grow in humility, okay? Would you take your hand and just put it in front of your face like this? Just like that. Nobody's taking pictures. This won't get posted anywhere, okay? Do you feel any warm air coming in or going out? If your answer is yes, then you need to grow in humility. Okay, this is something we all need. And God grants it in His grace. God grants us brings us to opportunities where we can find growth in humility or other areas of sanctification that we need. And that's how God is using each of our trials as a tool to help us. Paul knew that. He knew those things. What did Paul want God to do? Well, you see it in verse 8. Paul wanted God to solve his problem. He is begging God three times to take away this thorn to solve his problem. He's begging for relief. Why did Paul want that? Well, I think he wanted it because he was a human being. And I think any of us would have wanted the same thing if we were suffering like him. That is what we want when we're going through trial. We want relief. We want the problem to be solved. A doctor tells you he's found a a growth, you're going to ask God that it might be benign, that he would oversee that. 
you need a job, you're going to ask God to provide that for you. You're going to ask him to protect your family. These are all human desires, and there's nothing wrong with them. And when we beg God, ask God, depend on God to meet those needs, we are honoring him. We are expressing our dependence on him. There was nothing wrong with Paul's prayer for relief. But it was not God's desire for him at this time. So God spoke to him and he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And immediately, in the same verse, Paul says in verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In one short, simple little verse, Paul moves from begging God to take this away, to now saying, oh, okay, now I'm going to rejoice in this very same thing I was just begging you to take away, now I'm going to rejoice. And furthermore, verse 10, Lord, if you have any other thorns you want to throw my way, I'll I'll rejoice in those two. Quite a statement. And I think what that demonstrates is that Paul has completely yielded this desire for healing to God. I think if we could have gone to Paul and asked him after he said, uh, I'm going to rejoice in this, if we could have said, Paul, now what do you want? I think he might have said, you know, I'd still rather not have this thorn. That is still my desire. But my goal, my determination is I'm going to rejoice in exactly the place where God has placed me. This is, I don't think, so much an expression of his feeling, but it's more an expression of commitment. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to accept this. I'm going to use this trial as an opportunity to grow in my trust in God. Now, if you come back to Psalm 7, we'll see the second commitment. I will use this trial as an opportunity to examine my own heart. And we can see that in verses 3 through 5. What David does next in verse 3 is important. As you look at those verses, you can see that David is asking God to search his heart, to look at his conduct, because God knows the truth. He knows exactly what is happening in your heart. So it is only wisdom to ask God to search and to reveal areas of your heart that need to change. When you are the one that is going through injustice and unfair treatment, what tends to be your first natural automatic response? Well, if you're like me, my first response is to defend myself. That's a natural human habit whenever we are unjustly accused or putting up with some kind of unfair treatment. Our first desire most often is to defend ourselves. And we can defend ourselves by running away, or we can defend ourselves by attacking back. But either way, the goal is the same, to defend ourselves. Most of us start out by assuming that my heart is in the right place already. God is on my side. And God's highest priority is to vindicate me, to to bring this around the way that I think it should be. Those are natural human ways of looking at injustice and unfair treatment. 
Do you pray this prayer very often? Verses 3 through 5. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Uh, if I were going to be honest, I would have to say, I don't think I've ever prayed that prayer. Usually my prayer is more, more like this. Lord, I have not done this. There is no wrong in my hands. I have not repaid my friend with evil. So please pursue my enemy and trample him into the ground. <laughs> Use the trial as an opportunity to search your heart, to ask God to search your heart. And he promises to do that. He will reveal areas that need to change. He will convict you. He convicts me and shows where growth is needed. A third commitment that will help us I will use this trial as an opportunity to contrast my present experience with my future destiny. I'm going to contrast my present experience with my future destiny. And I think we see that expressed in verses 6 through 17. In verses 6 and 7, Paul, uh, David is asking God to intervene with justice. But then there's a transition in verse 8 where David stops asking. He's not asking God to do anything from verses 8 through 17. Instead, he is expressing his confidence in the justice of God. He's talking about who God is, not what God should do or what he wants God to do, but God is a God of justice. Nothing will ever change about that. That is a description of who he is. He is a God of justice and truth. He always judges correctly and righteously. David is expressing his trust in the righteousness and justice of God, even though that is not his experience at the time. If you are familiar with David's life, you kind of have a general idea of where David's life went from here. Saul spent the rest of his life pursuing David. And David spent those years hiding from Saul, running from Saul, having to kind of protect himself from attack. Finally, after Saul died in battle and David became the king of Israel, but that did not stop the injustice. There were plenty of other enemies who took Saul's place in pursuing David and attacking David. For the rest of David's life, he endured unfair, unjust, unjust treatment. So yielding to God, expressing confidence in the righteousness of God did not solve David's problem. It did not help his experience. And as far as we know, nothing was ever set right for David for the rest of his life. David continued to experience injustice, and unfair abuse throughout the rest of his life. But I think David recognized that this was not his destiny. This life 
was not his destiny. It was not what he was created for. Neither is it ours. And if you are going through a severe trial, if you are being treated unfairly in some way, recognize that this experience, even if it continues for the rest of my life, is not my destiny. This is not why God created me. Our experience in the world, even the good experiences, are not our destiny. One of the greatest places I can be is hiking along a river in a mountain on a beautiful day. That's about as good as life gets and brings a lot of pleasure. But I need to remember that even in that moment, this is not my destiny. This is not what I was created for. Even this wonderful experience is a contrast to what I'm going to experience forever. It's nothing like what we have to look forward to. I will use this trial as an opportunity to contrast my present experience with my future destiny. Would you look with me at one more passage? This will be on the screen too, but from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. John is describing something that he saw here in verses, starting in verse 9 of chapter 7. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, you know, this is a scene in heaven. And I just want to point out, first of all, in verse 9, this great multitude that no one can number, coming from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is just another expression, another opportunity for us to celebrate the power and the influence of the gospel. Because the message has always been the same. That God has fully paid for every single sin through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God is fully satisfied with everything that was accomplished for us. Which was proven by the fact that Jesus, after he died, was buried and three days later rose again from death and today is in the presence of God in heaven. 
That is a demonstration of the power and the influence of the gospel. When we get to heaven, we will see that every day. We will be reminded as we look at this massive crowd of people that we cannot even count that have been saved through the power of the gospel. But that's not my point. I want to go on. And uh, the elder asked John, who are these people clothed in white? And he ends up answering his own question. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The kind of tribulation they were enduring is described in verse 16. It's also described one chapter earlier in Revelation chapter 6. Their experience on the earth was described by hunger, by thirst. The sun did strike them. They were under intense heat. They spent to the very end of their lives living with absolute hatred, injustice, unfair abuse. That was their experience on the earth. And immediately, in one step, they move from that experience of horror and excessive suffering to now being in the presence of God, able to fall down and worship God and the Lamb for the salvation that they are now experiencing. And now their experience, which will go on forever without end, this is their destiny. Their experience now is the presence of God. The lamb in the midst of the throne is their shepherd, and he guides them to springs of living water. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more heat, no more tears. That's their destiny. They were created for that, and we have been created for that. Our experience on the earth only serves to contrast what our experience will be forever if we're in Christ. And every time we suffer, it is a reminder, this is not my destiny. This is not why God created me. He's using it, but this is not why He created me. He created me to enjoy Him forever in His presence in heaven. Well, I doubt that I've said very much that you haven't heard before today. The problem, the thing that makes it difficult is it's just hard for us to act accordingly. It's hard for us to actually change our way of looking at trial and our way of looking especially at unfair treatment. That is an issue, that change, that growth is an issue that we are depending on God to produce in us. We cannot do it by ourselves. I want to finish this morning with a short story, um, and you'll see the guy next, but this is Bill. You see him on the screen there. This is Bill. Everybody say hi, Bill. As you can see, uh, Bill is in a good mood today, which is kind of unusual for him, but he's in a good mood. Why is Bill in such a good mood? Well, I'll show you why. It's because he owns the most beautiful car in the world. The 1968 Plymouth Sport Fury 3 two-door hardtop. 
Isn't that the most beautiful car you've ever seen? Yeah, I agree. Let's, let's just sit here and look at this for a while. So Bill is out driving this car, and that's what is making him so happy. He's driving in this car and enjoying his day. This is one of the good times. But then, all of a sudden, Bill has a serious problem. Uh, and you can see it on his face there. He is scared to death. What happened? What is his problem? Well, this is his problem. He is driving his car, and he has come to a huge tree. That's a tree, okay? And it's fallen across the road. Now, Bill, uh, he has to go. He cannot go any other way. There are no other roads. He has to get past this tree. Uh, There is no one else around for miles. He cannot get help from anyone. And he has no tools with him at all. A 1968 Plymouth Sport Fury 3 two-door hardtop did not, is not the kind of car you put tools in. So he has nothing to help. And if you come up with any other solution, I'll just deny that too, okay? There is no way to solve this problem. He is in an impossible situation. Just like we are when we say, I'm going to rejoice in this trial. That's an impossible thing to do. We cannot do it by ourselves. So what should Bill do? Well, Bill came up with four ideas, but only one of them is going to work. Okay, his first idea was, I'm going to let go and let God. So he begins to pray, and he says, God, I'm in an impossible situation. I can't move this tree, so I'm going to sit here in my car and wait for you to move it for me, miraculously. Uh, And sometimes God does do miraculous things. He does intervene. I don't want to deny that at all. But that's not the way that God has called on us to pursue godliness. It's just waiting for Him to do it. God is not going to do it for you. So if you leave here this morning saying, my heart needs to change, I need to look at my trials differently. You you really can't just say, God, please change my heart. Do it for me. He doesn't work that way. So Bill came up with a second idea. God helps those who help themselves. So I can do this, right? God wouldn't put me in this situation if he didn't expect me to solve it. So I will get out and I will, I'm not sure how, but I'm going to move this tree. Well, we all know it doesn't work that way either, right? God doesn't sit and watch you do the work. So Bill came up with a third idea that was a little closer, but still not quite there. God is my co-pilot. I will do this with God. Okay, I'll get on one end, God will get on the other end, he'll do his part, I'll do my part, I can't do God's part, God won't do my part, so we're both going to do part of this and get this tree moved. It sounds good when you're talking about it, but that's not the way God works. He doesn't do it with us. I have nothing to offer. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So finally, he comes to the fourth idea. He's going to depend on God to do it through him. So he comes to God and he says, Lord, I'm in an impossible situation. There's nothing I can do about this, but it has to be done. So I'm going to trust you to move this tree through me. You're accomplishing it. I'm fully depending on you, but I am also taking responsibility at the same time. If anybody were around and they were watching, it would look like Bill was moving the tree by himself. But we all know that's impossible. God is doing it through him. And that's how sanctification happens. Philippians chapter 2 tells us we depend on God to give us both the desire 
and the ability to lead a godly life. That we don't wait for him to do it. He doesn't do it for us. He does it through us. We have responsibility. We depend on God. So if you were to leave here this morning and say, yeah, my heart needs to change when I face trial and difficulty or injustice. The way to see change is to take it seriously, take responsibility, but then at the same time depend on God to accomplish it through you. This is something you need for Him to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for the example you've given us in your word in David and in Paul and in others, in Jesus Christ himself, that the way to endure injustice is by committing ourselves to you, depending on you, trusting in you. Lord, I pray that you give each of us opportunity to think through this further and help us to evaluate, to search our own hearts. Lord, and I pray that we depend on you and trust you to bring about change and growth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.